All right, let us begin. And then uh, if we begin, maybe I'll be able to end. Who knows? Father, we thank you so. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your constant activity in our lives. We thank you so for how it is that you reveal yourself, how you frustrate our intellect to bring us back to the truth that we have no sufficiency apart from you, that there is no independence, there is no source, but that it is you. And the blessing of that weakness is to receive your constant provision, your constant wisdom, and to see the heart that you have that so passionately has pursued us and will continue to do so. We praise you for your goodness. Amen. So we have arrived um, spiritually, but um, in this series, we've also arrived at the resurrection, which is, I mean, hopefully for most people, this is the part that I was most excited to get to because it is the culmination of why Jesus had come into creation out of eternity. It is the promised completion of um, the law that he had announced, that he did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And um, it's, it, is the, it is the cornerstone of our hope. Um, not that, and, and it is such an incredible privilege that we have, that we do not look forward to more. We look forward to his return, um, absolutely, but we do not look forward to receiving more, that he has, he has completed what he intended to do, that upon arriving in heaven, we do not receive more Jesus. We will finally get to see him face to face, which is something that will pass description. But the fullness of deity that we look forward to, we have received already. The words of the angel to the shepherds was, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, from Luke 2.10. This is the, the Old Testament looks forward, and the, the New Testament looks to this, in addition to looking to the resurrection. I don't want to d- diminish the resurrection and the return, or the, the return um, over the resurrection. Um, but this is such a, a precious moment in history. So the timing of the resurrection, this isn't going to be news. I don't think anyone's going to be astounded by the timing of the resurrection takes place after the crucifixion. Um, I hope you're not shocked, um, but, you know, maybe. Um, but the crucifixion was... The wrath of God against mankind being addressed. It it is the completion of the sin being paid for, but also the wrath of God being addressed. And thereby, the resurrection is announcing the victory. And the wrath of God is something that I want to discuss because it's not a constant state of God. It's something that you can misunderstand when you look at the Old Testament and say, well, God by nature is angry all the time. God by nature always has low blood sugar and is impatient. Because when we think about anger and wrath, oftentimes we go to what we're familiar with by experience. And if that is another person's anger and wrath, then the only thing we've known is something where it expresses anger and wrath. But oftentimes, most of the time, human anger and wrath is from an imbalance of some kind. 
Whereas for God, it is an expression of his holiness and it's an expression of his righteousness in response to sin, which is a violation of God's righteousness. So in college, I had a really wonderful professor who's uh, since gone to be with the Lord, Cliff Bedell, and he had this illustration um, of, of how do you understand a violation and wrath um, reparation, but then also restoration, um, because that so much of is what Jesus's activity is that the crucifixion and then the resurrection announces the completion of. So if you think of you're out getting groceries and you are in a parking lot and you back into someone else's car, maybe it's a junky car, you, you bust the taillight, right? The, what you have done is you have violated something that belongs to another person. And what's significant is not that like it's an expensive car, it's just it's the fact that it belongs to someone else. And perhaps you do the legal thing and you get in contact with that person. And then through your insurance and their insurance, you could negotiate a repair and all this kinds of stuff. And at the end of it, you have the taillight repaired. So the person has come away with that which was damaged has been fixed. But it's probably not likely that like having completed that, that now they are happy to see you. Thank you for backing into my car and repairing this taillight. I'm so glad. In fact, they're probably likely to be upset for some time. And if you have been the person who has been violated against in that manner, if you've been the one who's had to negotiate with insurance companies for days and weeks, and sometimes it goes into months, you can still remember the frustration that went with all of that. And so think about why that is, because oftentimes our intellectual attitude is that we say, we have this stance of like, hey man, if it's fixed in the end, then just chill out. If, if, if the thing that was broken got repaired, then you can't have a problem with me. You're not allowed to, because where's the damage? Is it gone? Okay, well then, yeah, that's right. And when that is our attitude, it reveals the fact that we're not considering the relationship that's involved. And again, to go to the point, if it's a fancy car, if it's a junky car, I, many of us have probably had junky cars that were an incredible blessing. And we took care of those junky cars. So it may be this tiny little Geo Metro where the repair outweighs the value of the car potentially, but it's the fact that it belongs to someone else. The law can identify a wrong, and the law can demand reparation, but the law cannot restore relationship. So if all you've done is fix the taillight, you've repaired damage, but you've not addressed the anger that comes with having violated something that belongs to another. Now expand that from a simple car taillight and apply it to the entire created universe, where God created existence in 144 hours without flaw or error. Go ahead and do that. And then with the disobedience of Adam and Eve, the introduction of sin and death marred this creation. And so even if mankind could, this is not a possibility. Like I, think, I hope that we can look back at human history and be like, we don't need to wonder if maybe we can achieve this. If, if mankind could achieve perfection in independence from God somehow, and we could somehow achieve this, this, this perfect and flawless behavior of both our heart attitude and our external behavior, right? And we somehow repair creation. 
that is, is a blanket statement that's just silly as well. Even if we did that, we would still face the wrath of God. Because it's not just about repairing something that's broken. Again, it's about a violation against a person, not a thing. The violation of the thing is it's basically the channel through which you violate it against a person. And this is where the importance of the $16 word of the day, propitiation. The importance of the propitiation comes in, and propitiation is a fancy word that means we don't use it because most of the time this isn't an activity that you engage in. It is a sacrifice which takes away wrath. That's what the word propitiation means. It's, it's a sacrifice which, in this case, it takes away sin and it deals with God's wrath. So the, the professor that I had, Cliff Bedell's illustration was of a propitiatory sacrifice. You broke the taillight, right, on this Dodge Dart, and then you take the person whose taillight you have broken, and you take them to the Jaguar dealership, and you say, pick out what you want. That is a payment of debt where you, the payment is so overwhelming that it addresses any damage but then it completely, the, the manner in which the debt, the damage is paid, it then completely eclipses the personal emotions that come with being violated. And this is the importance. Jesus' death on our behalf is so much payment that it addresses the collective history of mankind's sin, past, present, and future. That is paid, but then it goes beyond that. It goes beyond reparation because then he presents himself to his own father representing all of humanity. And the wrath of God is exhausted on the infinite itself, which is the only manner in which the wrath of God could be exhausted. Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's because of Jesus' obedience the Father raises him from the dead, as he does with all those who believe in Jesus. He is the firstborn. Looking over to Luke 24, and starting in verse 1. It says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Also the other women were with them. Uh, 
Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But the words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. This is Luke, so we don't have John proclaiming how much faster he is. Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stopping and looking in, and he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. This was something, again, where because I was required to spend time, the Lord revealed something that I hadn't understood previously with the linen wrappings and Peter marveling. The linen wrappings, they do a number of things. They, they are evidence that Jesus walked from the tomb and wasn't body snatched. Um, but there's a much more significant image here of his completed work as our high priest. And I'm going to go over to Leviticus 16. And the key uh, words in this section is linen. So Leviticus 16, verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die. The mercy seat is the lid that keeps the ark of the covenant closed. The mercy seat is where the blood would be sprinkled, and the alternative name for the mercy seat is the propitiation. The literal lid is called the propitiation. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for the burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen armament, the linen undergarment shall be next to his body, and he shall be girded with a linen sash and attired with a linen turban. These are the holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. Going uh, from, uh, this is Leviticus 16, 2 through 4, um, going to verse 23 and 24. Uh, verse 23, Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come forth and offer the burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. So these are the instructions for the day of atonement, which is the word atonement means repairing wrongs or injury. So on the day of repairing wrongs or injury, the high priest has a separate set of clothes. And this goes again back to the holiness of God. You cannot simply just walk in wearing whatever you want. But there is, by faith, in obedience to the instructions that the Lord has provided, we trust that the instructions he provided are not lies, and that by acting in faith in obedience in response to these instructions, that it is the obedience that makes us acceptable. It is the trust that is expressed. And so when they would do these things, the high priest would walk into the tent of meeting and then change into another garment. And in that garment, he would then actually go and offer the sacrifice. So on the day of atonement, the day of repairing wrongs and injury, the high priest has the set of clothes. But in order to stand before the Ark of the Covenant and bring the sacrifice, he removes other clothes, cleanses himself, and then puts on this linen. In other words, Jesus died. He was buried in linens, which is again incredible because this is Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who come and ask for the body, a body that should have been stoned to death and put into a criminal's grave, which was instead crucified and laid aside in Joseph's tomb in accordance with the scripture. And they prepare his body by wrapping him in linen. These are men who are from the religious leaders. 
So they are, in that sense, sanctifying Jesus for what he is about to do. He's buried in linens, but then takes off those linens because he is going to make a sacrifice in the presence of the Father. Luke 24, verse 45. Having completed that, having gone into the Holy of Holies in heaven, which is greater than the earthly representation, he then removes those things because it is finished. It is done. And then here in Luke 24, verse 45, Jesus says, it says, He opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it was written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were, cont- uh, and were continually in the temple praising God. So you have this completed work. You have his resurrection. You have these images of him as high priest for all humanity addressing the wrath of his father in order to repair the relationship and then here in this final picture, I think this is a beautiful thing that previously had, had, I had missed it. So there's a, um, a chiasm, is a literary structure that you find a lot in scripture. And um, it, the Greek letter X is key. And it's supposed to um, give this image of um, a previous sequence being reversed and being mirrored. So if you previously had something that said one, two, three, four, five, you would have five, four, three, two, one. You see that especially a lot in um, something like in Mark, where it says um, the Sabbath was made for man, man was not made for the Sabbath, where you have this sequence and then you have it reversed. Here, just this simple sentence where it says, and he led them out as far as Bethany. For the triumphal entry, it mentions how he comes from Bethany and he goes into the city and he has the triumphal entry at the Mount of Olives. And then the Mount of Olives is also where the Garden of Gethsemane is located. And you have that prayer. And then now, after the resurrection, where you previously had people proclaiming him and saying Hosanna and praising his name because they're excited for him bringing about his kingdom, now you have this picture of this completion where the same path that he went into the city on the donkey, giving this image of he is the king, riding on a donkey, coming as a symbol of peace. Now he reverses that same trail going to Bethany. And I think that's an incredible picture because... The triumphal entry, you have this promise of God. I am coming to bring my kingdom. I am coming to bring peace and life. And it goes from the outside going in. And then at the Mount of Olives, you have this reversal where he is arrested and he is killed. And so you have a promise. God will do these things. And then you have an earthly observation of what's left. Well, it can't happen anymore. Now it's impossible. It's been completely undone and it can never be. And then you have the reality at the end of Jesus returning out of Jerusalem and ascending into heaven, which is that classic picture of God making a promise, allowing circumstances where the promise becomes completely impossible, and then he does it anyway as a way of revealing who he is, the true nature, the true power of his word, 
the faithfulness that cannot be undermined and cannot be undone. Jesus' name is truly above all other names. And we see these constant reminders of that. Going in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 9, where it says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him, and therefore encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are doing. It is an incredible message. It is an incredible gift to know that his words from the cross of it is finished are true, that there is nothing to add, that there is no, there is no additional Jesus that I can give to you. And that as we think about where he has brought us, right, if we think about the, the blessings that we've received and we think about, well, how did I make sure that I got here? How did I secure this? Because oftentimes that as we look forward into the future, we worry about like, well, how is it going to happen? How is it going to continue? And the answer is that we have to look back and say, how did you make sure? What did you do to yourself to secure your own progress? How did you cause the Lord? How did you make sure that he would speak to your heart? And the answer is, is he has always done it all. He has always preceded us. He has always cared for us because that is his heart. That is the blessing of as we wrestle with weakness and frustration and we recognize that we are his children, that that is the part of having that incredible heavenly father, that, that true picture of, of fatherhood, which we don't always see in the world, but we, we do receive from him that his care for us is that he understands what we don't have because he has created us with many of those weaknesses. He has not created us for sin, but there are flaws that we have that aren't related to sin. I may just be terrible at math. That doesn't mean that it's because I am sinful, therefore I just can't math. But those are things where he allows those weaknesses because Oftentimes, it's in those things that we wrestle with, where we're so familiar. Often, I, I would express it as we've lived with ourselves our whole life, and we know what flaws we have, and yet how often the Lord speaks so powerfully in those things and blesses us because we can see how it is that it is, it is His Spirit alive and at work in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. Any thoughts or comments? Well put. Shucks. That is, that is I, I hope those are the words of the Lord. Um, and I, I definitely don't want to take credit for, for that. It's been, it has been such an encouragement, again, to, to have that that responsibility of, of studying. And um, I very much appreciate the, the elders giving me that opportunity to, to share and to teach. It has been a, a real privilege and an honor to, um, to be in a place where you must speak accurately about the Lord and then realize this isn't going to happen, Lord. <laughs> Based on me, like if you don't show up, there's nothing happening. It's going to be a bunch of puns and they're going to remember the puns and they're not going to remember anything else. And it's going to be that classic thing about like, well, now I'm wasting oxygen. 
But the faithfulness of our God is just an incredible thing to, to see the lengths that he went to. The repeated mention in scripture of that he was willing to die even on a cross because of the amount of embarrassment and shame that the cross was meant to carry to function as a warning and a deterrent for anyone who saw, not experienced, but who saw this form of execution. And for the Lord to say, that is perfectly acceptable to go through that for the prize that I will redeem as a result. I think that is a wonderful thing that as we're faced with whatever it is that's happening, how shall I cause my children to trust the Lord when they're not under my strict observation? No, I don't cause this. I encourage them. I influence, but I don't control. I cannot change another person's heart. Well, then where's the hope? Because I can, I'm not going to look directly at y'all, but I can see some people who need the Lord. And how will, I, how will we make sure and to, to simply trust? So many examples in Scripture where it is simply a case of be quiet and the Lord will fight for you. The words that you need, he will give to us. It's exciting to go through all kinds of social fantasies. They will say this foolish thing and I will retort with this. And they will say another foolish thing. And I will, well, I don't know, I'll figure it out. But I'll, I'll say this and I will look fantastic. And then oftentimes that's the foolishness that where it's completely reversed for our own humility. And yet, despite us being foolish at times in our words, the Lord is glorified and people come to receive him. And we look at the things that we said and we say it doesn't make any sense because I didn't have any power. And the Lord says, that's right, you didn't. I'm glad you noticed that this time. You haven't had power for quite some time, but we're, we're slowly getting around to the point where you realize it's not your power but it is mine. And I think in that, just the gentleness, when we, when we see the foolishness, and again, the, the, the examples in Scripture so often where we, we see these people and, and we hear the stories and we forget the, the reality of Scripture versus other books of printed text. You read Moby Dick and Ahab and the whale never become good friends at the end. It's always the same ending, and we're not surprised. And we read, through, we read through Scripture, and Peter always denies Christ, and we're not surprised. And the religious leaders, they call for him to be crucified, and we're not surprised. Because we've heard it once before. But to, to understand that the same foolishness in them is the same foolishness that exists in us independent from Christ. There's a great story of Eastern Europe and the different persecution that churches went through and how some of the, the church members there were just indignant at believers who had denied the Lord and then afterwards wanted to come back into the church. And um, there was a guest speaker who they were sharing some of this stuff to. And, uh, and he said, well, that's, that's me. I would do that. And they said, no, 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 you wouldn't do that. He said, oh, no, I absolutely would. When they called for people to denounce the Lord and come to the front, he said, I would be right up there. Apart from Christ, that is exactly who I would be. And that oftentimes we, we read and in our intellect, we think that we are acquiring tools that will give us a strength that only comes from Jesus. And the reality is, is that in the moment, the dependence that we, that we always exist in, that we're always, oftentimes we're ignorant of because of how the Lord holds us and sustains us. 
there are brief glimpses that we have where that grace is not removed, but slightly peeled back, and we see the foolishness that, that we have. But it is always, that foolishness is always then contrasted with his incredible provision. And the same way that as he offers a sacrifice to repair the damage, the, the enormity, the gravity of sin, which is then completely overwhelmed by the enormity of Jesus, of our God, that is also the, the blessing that comes back to us, that as we see our weakness, that the contrast of, of having to recognize me apart from Jesus is, is soothed and healed by, by him, by the active revelation of him in the middle of a day where I wasn't expecting him to work in specific ways and to see him and hear him. And yet it is his faithfulness that continues to draw me back. Not because I've prepared myself so well, but simply because he is always there. He is always working and healing and restoring and sustaining. And, and it is such an awesome God that we serve. So I, think, I think a question that comes up in my mind is how foolish are we willing to look in the eyes yeah. of the world? You know, that's, that's one of those things that, that we can talk about, you know, that the scripture says that faith in Christ is foolishness to the world. Mm-hmm. And as we're talking to people, you know, how willing are we to that? And I've had to deal with that in the past. It's like, I don't like looking like a fool. I don't yeah. think too many of us do. Yeah. But are we willing, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ, to look foolish? Mm-hmm. You know? That's not something we quickly run to, but it's something we need to wrestle with. And I think oftentimes it's that we don't see those opportunities as opportunities for faith. Because what we're doing is we're stepping forward and we're saying, I don't know how someone's going to receive this. And the words that I'm about to say, I don't think they're going to get them. Good. Because we cannot connect these things. We cannot make the intellectual connection. We cannot cause something in another person's life to actually sink into their heart and for the importance of it to matter. And our focus typically is on, uh, my focus is on me. And, and you know, I'm going to say these things, they're not going to understand them, and they're going to think mm-hmm. I'm stupid, and, you know, mm-hmm. rather than, I'm going to say whatever foolish thing the Lord, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, it sounds foolish to me, I'm going to say it anyway. And if the guy says, that the person says, you're a fool and get out of here, well, okay, that was, I was faithful to do what he asked me to do. You know, but am I, am I okay with that? Typically, yeah. we're not because we're focused on us and not on the other person, not on Christ. You know, that's, what, that's where I find myself too often. Yeah, and I think it's understandable because we correctly look at our ability. We correctly look at our ability, but then we say and we insist, my inability is the only thing that I can bring to this person, and so my inability will cause nothing to happen. And instead of saying, my inability is that platform and that vessel that as the Lord wishes to use it however he wants. But it is, it is at that point an activity of taking my attention off of me. And that is a difficult, that is a hard thing. Because at that point we are giving up pride. Which is exactly the thing that we so bemoan the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That they would not do. Oh, they only play these silly games which I do not do. Thank you, Lord, that I am not like these men. We don't, we don't think of it that way. 
not intellectually, not out loud, but emotionally, that's, that's the function of, of so many of these circumstances. And the value, again, of that obedience to the Lord, not because of whatever it is that he's asking, but because it is he who is asking us to do it and to step forward in faith. And it's, it is often a correct assessment that the Lord will say, I am asking you to do these things. And we say, okay, well, I need 10 things, and I think I have one of them, but I can't find it right now. So I can't actually go forward. And he says, I, I am has sent you. It does not matter to me at all what you can't do because I actually have a longer list of what you can't do. And I seek to glorify myself in all of that. I seek to use the impossibility of what you have so that you will know that I am God and so that others will know I am God because I'm going to send some fishermen to filibuster and they're going to sound like hicks, but they're going to sound like they have a revelation that is clearly beyond their ability. And it is there to, to confound the wisdom because the wisdom says that only the things that I can measure in you is what you can produce. And when you produce more, now my, my ruler's broken. You can't. It's a two-in-one. You can't put two-in-one. You can't have a two-in-one. So when you produce more than what you look like, that's just, no, it doesn't work. They must have memorized it. They don't really know what that says. But that, that is the, always that opportunity where... The, the spirit is able to break through in those.